at the speed of light, there is no sequence. Everything happens at the same instant. That's acoustic, and uh, everything happens at once. Uh, there's no continuity, there's no connection, there's no, there's no follow-through. It's just all now. And that, by the way, is uh, the way any sport is. Eh? The sports uh, tend to be like that. And in terms of uh, the uh, new uh, lingo of the hemispheres, it's all right hemisphere. Games are all right hemisphere. And uh, because they involve the whole man, and they are all participatory, and uh, they're all uncertain, they're not, uh, there's no continuity, there's just all uh, surprise, unexpectedness, and total involvement. Is that okay, do you think? The hemisphere thing? Yeah, but I mean uh, the whole thing, no surprise, all spontaneity, uh, no connection, just uh, all at one time. Is that okay for people? Well, okay, meaning is it good for people? Yes. We live in a world where everything is supposed to be one thing at a time, lineal, connected, logical, and goal-oriented. So obviously for that left hemisphere world, this new right hemisphere dominance is bad. We're now living in a world which pushes the right hemisphere way up because it's an all-at-once world. The right hemisphere is an all-at-once simultaneous world. So uh, the right hemisphere, by pushing uh, up into dominance, is making the old left hemisphere world, which is our educational establishment, our political establishment, make it look very foolish. What do you think is the most, uh, uh, I, want, I want to use the word effective, but that's not the right word, but I'm talking about television here. Uh, what has the greatest impact on audience? Television in fosters and favors a world of corporate participation in ritualistic programming. Uh, TV is not good at covering single events. It needs a ritual, a, a, a rhythm, and a pattern. I think that was the, the great secret of a thing like the Olympics. Uh, people had the feeling of participating as a group in a great, meaningful ritual. And uh, it didn't much matter who won. That wasn't the point. But I think TV tends to foster uh, that type of pattern in events. Well, you might say it tends to foster patterns rather than events. I was here during the tornado or the, or the uh, hurricane. hurricane, and I was amazed at the excitement that that generated in everybody, expectancy. I think that is one of the functions of news, to blow up a storm so big that you can dissipate it by coverage. It's a way of getting rid of the pressure by coverage that you can actually dissipate a situation by giving it a maximal coverage. It's very disappointing and from one angle, but it's survival from another but now angle. don't you get into alarming people? That's done by rumors, not by coverage. Hints, suggestions. Uh, but the big coverage merely enables people to get together and enjoy the uh, sort of a, a group emotion. It's like uh, being at a ball game. But uh, that taught me that one of the mysteries of coverage is that it's a way of releasing tension and pressure. It requires an enormous amount of energy to participate in. It, you don't have that freedom of detachment. We're just talking about basic television programs. Yeah. Well, one of the effects of television is to remove people's private identity. They become corporate, peer group people just by watching it. They lose interest in being individual, private individuals. This is one of the hidden and uh, perhaps insidious effects of television. Forgive my impertinence, but has anybody asked you why you are sometimes difficult to understand? <laughs> uh, because I use the right hemisphere when they're trying to use the left hemisphere. Okay, well, Simple. I'll try and get back on the, the left. Ordinarily, people are trained to try to follow you and to connect everything you say with what they last heard. They're not prepared to use their wits they're only prepared to use the idea they picked up the first time and try to connect it to another idea. So if you're in a situation that is flexible, where you have to use your wits and perceptions, they can't follow you. They have preconceptions that phase them out. You see, that's left hemisphere. Well, I use the right hemisphere a great deal, which is a world of perception, not no concepts. Gotcha. I don't and you don't try to connect things, you I just let the right hemisphere take over and yeah. let it go. And watch what's happening. is War Machine.
the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. My name is Matt, and in this episode, you'll hear a conversation between me, Justin Pearl, Matt Valor, and Andrew McLuhan, who is the grandson of the legendary Marshall McLuhan, son of Eric McLuhan, and the founder of the McLuhan Institute, uh, which we talk a little bit about. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, we talk about media ecology, what the medium is the message is all about, understanding media as activism, and more. You'll find a link to all of the McLuhan stuff that gets referenced in the interview, including the three-song demo from Andrew's old punk band, The Politics, which is actually pretty good if you're into that sort of thing. Just a reminder about our upcoming seminars. In May, Dr. Marika Rose will lead the Radical Theology Seminar in an exploration of Slavoj Žižek's contribution to Radical Theology. In June, Adam Clark's seminar will be on James Cone. And in July, Clayton Crockett will be with us and talking about Radical Theology and New Materialism. So, a lot of great discussions to be had. Uh, we'd love to have you join the conversation. Go to patreon.com slash radicaltheology and sign up for only a few bucks. When you do that, you'll be able to directly engage with our seminar guests. You know, talk with them, ask them questions, and so on. Uh, you'll also get access to all of our past seminar content. Oh, and we'll also mail you a really sweet God is Dead pin that you can proudly wear to your next deacon's meeting or parent-teacher conference or kid's birthday party or whatever and uh, evangelize anyone who asks you about it. All right, we're good to go here. Here is Andrew McLuhan. Peace. Andrew McLuhan is the name. Uh, I'm a bunch of things. I like to introduce myself first and foremost as a poet these days because I feel that um, although I wear a lot of metaphorical hats, I am a poet. You know, I say that writing a poem is almost the least poetic act. You know, there's so much that happens before you actually write a poem. And you don't even have to write any poems or compose any poems to be a poet because it's, it's how you experience uh, life and how you relate to life, how you look for things and appreciate things and relate things. And so, you know, I do enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy writing poetry. Um, I published a book last year called Written Matter um, through Revelar Press, which was a lot of fun to do. My first uh, after half a dozen chapbooks, uh, art and poetry, first real poetry book, I guess, you know, so now I feel a bit like an author as well as just a writer. Um, and then, uh, I do this McLuhan work. I'm a husband and father. Those are definite roles that are big in my life. Um, I'm a musician to a, a lesser extent, uh, and I'm an upholsterer. I, I, uh, I fix and restore and reupholster vintage and antique chairs. That's fascinating. I mean, that's kind of a lost art. There's not a lot of people doing it anymore. And so I get calls all the time mm -hmm. and um, I don't have uh, very much time to do it anymore. So mm -hmm. I basically tell people I can't help them these days, but I do, I do take on, it means I can be a little more selective and say, no, I can't help you with your lazy boy. And yes, I would love to help you with your great grandmother's beautiful chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really cool. Before you jumped on, Justin and I were talking. He he mentioned that he thinks you're a projectionist as well. Is that true? I was a projectionist until the pandemic, basically. Okay. okay. Uh, the pandemic closed the the theater. I live here in the country between farms, literally between farms. The nearest major town, major is uh, Picton, which is a town of like 4,000 people. And they have a, a more than century old theater. In fact, the theater, the theater predates film. It started as a vaudeville house, which is pretty cool. Um, and then they, they converted to film, you know, as we all roll with the technological times. Um, and I got a job there back in 2011 when um, Exit Through the Gift Shop came out. Are you familiar with that? Banksy's, oh God, Matt, get with it. You have to see it. Banksy's amazing film, Exit Through the Gift Shop, which was actually a film pre-digital everything. 
it was a film and I talked to the manager at the theater and said, Hey, are you going to get this film? Can you get this film? It's going to be amazing. And he said, uh, no, no. I, I mean, I don't think anybody would come out to it. And I said, seriously, well, how many people would it take to make it, you know, worth your while? He said, you know, 30, 40 people. I said, well, come on. I mean, I can get, I could get 40 people to come out. I said, well, if you can get them out, then great, we'll do it. So, you know, I created an event around it and had a DJ and a graffiti guy there and we made a night of it and I had 230 people come out for the film. That's fine. For me, I was vindicated, you know. Uh, (laughs) And on the strength of that, um, he offered me a job as a projectionist. So I did that one day a week for, I guess, 10 years, just about um, until the pandemic. And um, I didn't go back because... You know, when I started, I sound old now, but when I started, we actually showed films, you know, projector and the films would come and you had to put them together and right. set them up and go through the camera and everything. And um, in the last couple of years, it switched to digital. So they sent you a hard drive and you downloaded a decryption key, which would time out and then you ship the hard drive back. Um, so one little hard drive, as opposed to like five cans of film makes a lot of sense, but obviously they're very big differences between projecting film and projecting a digital image. And we don't live in town anymore. We live out here. I was like, you know what? I had my, I had my run and uh, it's time for me to to leave that. So now I'm doing um, mostly McLuhan things full time with a bit of upholstery to keep my hands busy here and there. Well, just one more question. I continuing in the biographical direction I'm curious about what it's been like for you to um, inherit the McLuhan name. I wonder if maybe that was like weird at all growing up. I I would imagine being associated with the work of Marshall and Erica is cool in some ways, but maybe problematic in other ways. Maybe there's some difficulties that come along with that. Did you ever get teased? Teased? Not so much. I mean, when you grow up, it's like, that's your dad or your granddad. Actually, I was only two and a half years old when Marshall died. So Mm. Um, I don't have, have that much, uh, direct memories, but, um, you know, I've got some nice pictures of Marshall holding me as a baby and stuff like that, which is kind of cool. But, um, you know, and then you, you get a little bit older and you start to realize that, um, you know, your granddad is not the same as other people's granddads because people seem to know who your granddad was, you know, and that's not normal, (laughs) Um, and then it get a bit older and people also have an awareness of that. And so start to ask you questions, you know, like, what does the medium is the message mean? And I'm like, why don't you read a book, <laughs> you know, uh, because I'm here trying to find, you know, discover my own identity, um, and understand the work for myself. And maybe you should read a book and, and figure it out. And then I got into punk rock and had a, a little few stronger words to tell people what to do with their time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, because I, I tried to read understanding media when I was like a teenager, you know, and it just went over my head. It did nothing for me. So I was like, man, fuck that. Um, and joined a punk rock band. And, and uh, that, what was the name of your punk rock band? Oh, uh, the politics. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. I'm looking, I'm YouTubing now as we speak. Oh, you'll find it. If you, if you search for like politics and Kripotkin, you'll come up with like a, a three song series that I play guitar and sing like lead or backup vocals on. It's kind of fun. Uh, we were a three piece power punk, like, you know, hardcore punk band. That's a lot of fun. Uh, punk and reggae. So we did like traditional roots reggae and like hardcore punk, which was a lot of fun. And then I went, I went and tried to read it again in my twenties and made a little more sense. Um, but I, I grew up in the McLuhan, you know, because my dad was in the work, he kept going when Marshall died in 1980. So I grew up in that world and in that kind of stew or medium, if you will, that environment. Um, and so in my twenties, when I tried to read, understand and meet again, it made more sense. It made less sense to me than I thought it did looking back, you know, but uh, I got a bit further, still not not really that far. And um, I was searching for my own identity, so I didn't really do anything with it. I didn't do schooling past high school, right? Um, but then in my 30s, uh, I kind of came into it sideways. My dad needed somebody to travel with him. 
um, when he's giving speeches because he was diabetic uh, and he would run into, you know, health problems, his blood sugar would drop. And unless somebody was there who knew what to do, like it was a bad, bad scene. Um, so I started traveling with him and I found in my early thirties that it actually made sense for like the first time. Like it, it really, I, I got it. And, you know, a little, a little understanding goes a long way and it's a kind of seductive thing, you know, um, it's, it's a chasing the dragon kind of thing. You know, that feeling when something clicks, uh, that epiphany, you know, it's like a magic thing and it's, it's heady stuff. Um, and the thing with this McLuhan work is it's so compelling. It feels like it opens your eyes, you know, it's like that, Oh, whatever color pill it is in the matrix. I, I I don't, I can't keep track of red or blue or whatever pill, but needless to say, you feel like you, you see the world with, with fresh eyes and you see the kind of, uh, you know, peek behind the curtain a little bit. Um, and, and I was hooked. So, uh, I started working more closely with my dad and I spent a year and a half, uh, inventorying and documenting Marshall McLuhan's library. Um, which I, I talk about here and there. And then um, when my dad died in 2018, um, I had just sort of started this thing called the McLuhan Institute because weirdly enough, I saw a time coming when my dad wouldn't be around and I didn't want to be um, stuck without a plan. Uh, and there was nothing in place, you know, just like when Marshall died, there was no plan, no succession plan or anything. My dad just kind of kept going because he'd been working with him since the 60s. Um, but I figured there needed to be something to keep McLuhan's studies, you know, the particular way of studying technology that Marshall and my dad developed to keep it going. It, it formed a tradition and um, it wasn't being taught or pursued anywhere but here with my dad, um, as far as I'm concerned. And it's not like I set out to, to do that. It just kind of organically happened. And um, honestly, I, I couldn't be more pleased about it just because I find it so damn interesting and there's way more than a lifetime's work for any one person. So it's not like I'll ever run out of things to do. I guess my goal at this point is to save my kids from, cause I have two, two young sons to save them from the position I'm in, which is um, kind of left holding the bag a little bit. So my, my plan with the McLuhan Institute is to create, something that will persist and keep the tradition alive um, when I'm gone or when I've had enough with it. So when, when you talk about the tradition, it's, I was listening back to some of your early podcasts when you were first establishing the Institute. And one of the things you talk a bit about is the idea of media ecology versus media literacy, right? Because there's this huge push, particularly around like a secondary education around media literacy. But even, you know, I work in, um, I work at an, an undergraduate institution and they're really invested in this idea of media literacy as, as absolutely essential. And what you talk about is that, Whatever this the McLuhan family project is, it is not a project about media literacy. So I wonder if we could use that maybe as an entry point to talk a little bit about what is this work that you're you're continuing that your father and your grandfather worked on? For sure. Media literacy is a big deal and it's very needed. You know, um, media literacy tends to focus on understanding motivations, understanding how people use technology to manipulate, how they use content to persuade and manipulate, you know, politically, ideologically, make you buy things, all this kind of stuff. And it's really important to understand that, to know that if something is quote unquote free, that means you're, you're actually on offer, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's important. I'll, I'll never put it down, even though I may be used to. But um, there's so much more to media than the content. And if you take content out of the equation, media literacy doesn't have much to teach you. And that's where McLuhan studies focus. McLuhan studies focus on the nature of the technologies themselves. So we look at what role Zoom has played for people in society since COVID 19 started. And that's regardless of whether. We're here talking today 
or whether, you know, I'm participating or watching some other panel or just catching up with a friend, regardless of our particular use of it at any given time, the message of the medium is how it's reshaped society. And so Zoom has really facilitated the whole remote work thing. Um, And that's been a revolution on the order of uh, suburbia. You know, the same thing that uh, suburbs meant to the world, to the United States, to North America in the 40s, 50s and 60s, Zoom uh, is doing to us today, you know, and it's reorganizing what cities look like, what homes look like, what the office looks like um, and what we look like, what we smell like, you know, spoiler alert. But I didn't put on deodorant before this interview because I really didn't need to, you know, and uh, sorry if that's TMI. You know, this is actually a real background, but it could be just a blank wall that I've, you know, put a a mask on or whatever. There's a lot of little effects and these things have happened regardless of um, the intent of the designers, regardless of what you and I are, are doing at any given time. McLuhan started investigating back in the 40s and 50s, even um, into the 60s and 70s. And what sets aside why I say it's a tradition distinct from other approaches to media studies, it was, and and I guess remains kind of revolutionary, especially when um, look at look at the curricula and the positioning statements from media literacy programs, and there's very, very little mentioned about what I'm talking about here. Now, the weird thing is, because I have friends who are in media literacy and like national and international media literacy organizations, and honestly, they're doing great work and, and God bless them and everything. And they think that they're doing McLuhan work a lot of the time. They're like, yeah, McLuhan, medium is the message. That's what we're doing. But they're not. And they don't really get that, um, which is, um, it's very interesting. There's you know, something deep going on there. As, as Marshall said, there's a, there's a deep repugnance in the human breast against understanding. And it's a, it's a very complicated thing, but I think a lot of it boils down to how frightening it is because we have very little individual control over that kind of systems effect. You know, the only control we really have amounts to turning it off. Um, which is a lot of control that even people don't realize they have, you know, um, I've had to, to figure this out because if I really want to get stuff done, I've got to leave this in the house because actually this is in a converted barn and the house is 80 feet down the driveway there. Um, I, if I leave that in the house, my productivity goes through the roof and you don't realize how much, you know, looking at a notification, how much that adds up to hours of your day. You know, it's crazy, but um, these are these are the little things that uh, that we don't really notice, and that we have a very difficult time taking responsibility for individually, and in particular on the side of companies who put these things out in the first place. Yeah, in what you were saying there, you were already sort of unpacking to some extent, that idea of the media is the message. I think I know maybe it's something you talk about all the time, <laughs> but uh, we, we, you know, we can't not ask you about it, but before we, before we do that, I, I thought maybe, uh, I don't know, a remedial question might be helpful uh, for, for folks. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a media studies guy, but I'm curious what we mean when we talk about media, you know, what is it? Of course it's radio and TV and some of those things, but Marshall's view, as I understand it, was that, you know, anything that extends the human is media. And I think I read actually somewhere that he, he thought of clothing as prosthetic skin. Is, is that mm-hmm. right? I mean, is that, is that the right way to think about that? Sure. The 1964 book is Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. 
And uh, one definition of medium is in that subtitle, an extension. A medium is, is any innovation which extends some uh, sense or faculty or ability of the user. This is one thing that differentiated, especially in the early days, um, McLuhan's approach from the conventional approaches was this broadening of the category of the of what a medium is. Okay, and Marshall started out in communications, uh, studying communication, as many people did, but then he left behind simple communication and and opened it up to all human innovation as worth study as as media. And the key to understanding, I, I love talking about the medium as a message because it's there's so much there. Again, it's it's so poetic. Poetry is uh, condensed, you know. Like I have kids, so I'll use a, a kid metaphor. You know, you get these these little tiny dinosaurs, and you put it in water, and you leave it overnight, and you come back the next day, and it's like this big, right? Um, <laughs> this this little phrase, the medium is the message, is, is like that. It's something that expands well beyond, it's only five words. And these, these five words can mean so much, but a lot of it rests on, on what exactly medium means. And so when, when I started the McLuhan Institute, I, I figured uh, one thing I would focus on would be the medium is a message because you know, so many people have heard it and it has so much uh, life to it. So I've set out to discover the first and the last times Marshall said it. He said the medium is the message so many different ways in so many different contexts. And one of my favorites is an interviewer asks him, well, Marshall McLuhan, Dr. McLuhan, he says, isn't the message the message? And people like to say that. And Marshall said, well, where would you look for the message in an electric light? the message of the electric light isn't, isn't, uh, you know, really much unless you somehow use light bulbs to spell out words or something to convey a message. But the message is that, um, 24 hour factories and cities and nighttime baseball and studies, not by candlelight and, you know, all these other things, the electric light creates an environment in which things are possible. And that, that is the message and that is the medium. So um, actually I have it here because I was talking about it last week, but he gave this speech in 1967. And then uh, in 1971, it was reprinted and he added this thing called Postscript 1970. He had what I kind of call an environmental turn where he started talking about technologies, media more as environments than instruments in illustrating how they uh, have effect or change. And he says here in 1971, in the four years since making the above observations, I've discovered very many things about media and education. It is now perfectly plain to me that all media are environments. As environments, all media have all the effects that geographers and biologists have associated with environments in the past. Environments shape their occupants. One person complaining about my observation that the medium is the message simply said, McLuhan means that the medium has no content. The electric light has no content. This remark was extremely useful to me because it revealed the obvious, namely the content of any medium is the user. This applies equally to electric lights, any language, whatever, and of course to motor cars, housing, and even tools of any sort. It is obvious that the user or content of any medium is completely conformed to the character of this man-made environment. His sensory life rearranges its hierarchies and dominance in accordance with the environment in which he operates. And he goes on. But, um, you know, Marshall talked about media having two major effects psychic and social, personal and social. So uh, technologies shape our senses. And the thing is, when, when you affect one sense, you affect all your senses and not just the five common senses, but you know, um, we have dozens of senses that our bodies use. Um, and he liked to use, uh, this guy Jacques Lucyran wrote a book called And There Was Light. He was a 
a prominent figure in the French resistance in World War II. And this book is very useful because he went blind very suddenly at a very at a young age. And he talks about how over the course of a couple of days, having lost his eyesight so dramatically, his lights went out, as it were, but his other senses started becoming more acute, his sense of smell, his sense of touch. These things uh, sort of took up some slack and uh, developed in a different way. And your senses operate uh, in a ratio among themselves, too. So all this rearranges. And this happens with with technologies as well. Um, as they impact one sense, they impact the other senses. So this has profound impact on, on you. It shapes who you are and your sense of who you are. Just imagine your identity now and think about how how you would be if you lost your sight. What would that do to your sense of self and how people perceive you as well? Big consequences to your sense of identity as well as everything else in your life, right? So that's that's the personal. But then consider this society-wide. So you have a whole society of people who uh, have a certain sensory makeup and bias. You shift that and you shift the whole society as well. Uh, this COVID-19 mess obviously has been a, a crazy thing in the world, but it's shown us a lot. And look at how, how the world has changed in the last two whatever years since everybody went online. Look how people have changed. Look at the statistics with mental health services. There's many, many factors that, that become obvious. And the overreaching factor is uh, the major changes in the withdrawal from public and into what was formerly you know, private. So work and school online. Um, Marshall liked to talk about breakdown as breakthrough, that you know, when everything's going fine, uh, we don't notice, but when something breaks down, all of a sudden, all kinds of things become clear, uh, you know, supply chain issues and um, you can't get a microchip and all this stuff. It's when things break down. Another, another quote he liked to, to drop was, if they only raise the temperature of the bath by a degree every hour, you wouldn't know when to scream. That's fun. That is fun. <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of the double-edged sword about techno technological progress in the last 150 years is that it happens so fast, we don't have time to adjust. And so all kind of hell breaks loose. However, it happens so fast that we don't have time to adjust. So we actually notice things for the first time. Sit in a lukewarm bath and slowly raise the temperature by 10 degrees and you don't notice step into that 10 degree hotter bath from the cool air and you notice right away. It's a pretty good analogy for technological change too. Yeah. I had a, a pastor who called that the frog in the pot, right? So <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. We're, we are the frog. We're the frog, baby. <laughs> it's frogs all the way down. You know, so Marshall, Marshall made a career of, of noticing these kind of things and, it's, it always blows my mind that he was an English teacher, and that's that's not something to be dismissed. He he came to media studies directly from literature studies, and basically he took the techniques he'd learned for literary criticism and put them to popular culture, first to advertising and comics back in the 40s, and he published The Mechanical Bride, and then he turned them loose on the rest of the world on, on technologies. And discovered that same kind of techniques he could use to understand poetry and literature, which are human products, he could use equally to probe computers and typewriters and telephones, which are human products. Because all human products have some things in common, necessarily because they're human products. So to what extent do you think that the, the question of scale affects that because you know if you write a single poem for example it's a very like unique event uh it's very personal it's very specific and if i walk into a room and i turn on the light you know that's very specific and it's in the place that i am 
and that media um that medium is changed then in in how i then interact with that room but when you're talking about uh, the invention of the electric light and how it you know reshapes factory conditions and so on we're talking about a kind of phenomenon across society so in mcclellan's work is there a difference in scale between sort of a specific medium in a kind of micro context and the kind of macro phenomenon that is a way of sort of media writ large uh, across society. Of course. And um, back to understanding media in 1964, the opening chapter is chapter one, the medium is the message. And he says that uh, for the message of any medium is the change in scale or pattern or pace that the technology introduces into human affairs. So, of course, it's a matter of degree. And if you want to um, continue the ecological metaphor, it's the difference between, you know, microclimates and the climate at large. The microclimate affects on a local level and the wider environment affects on a a wider level. So, of course, that has a lot to do with uh, the effect of any given technology or lack of effect of any given medium or environment. There's something in the medium is the message that as someone who who appreciates people writing in the idiom of of new materialism, it sounds to me like a sort of proto new materialist maxim of sorts. And I was wondering, Matt, if you had thoughts about this, too, because the, the idea that the medium is the message seems very sort of correspondent with um, something like what Karen, Karen Barad is doing in, in the interplay between matter and meaning. I mean, I had a similar thought, but because we, we talk about this quite a bit, and I think that the, the relationship between matter and meaning is of particular interest. So if you say the medium is the message, and you're bringing those things together, but yeah, I didn't, well, I, I, I wasn't quite sure how to frame the question either, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I don't know much about new materialism. As I said, I didn't, I didn't go to school past high school. So I missed out on a lot of that stuff. Although I don't really think I missed out on something. Yeah, you, uh, had a punk, you had a punk band called the Politics. So when? So there's that, right? <laughs> uh, you want some catharsis? There's nothing like turning up your amp and yelling "fuck you" to a crowd of people to really get some catharsis happening. That's uh, that's good times. Yeah, I guess I'm the punk rock McLuhan. You know, you see this, you see this logo behind me, right? Yeah, I was curious about that. Why, why is the bird upside down? So I designed this logo for the McLuhan Institute because you see it's a pigeon sitting on top of a W and Marshall uh, McLuhan was from Winnipeg and he liked to call himself a Winnipigeon uh, for whatever reason. He's a big city. Cities are full of pigeons. Who knows? Anyway, I'm, I've been fond of pigeons. So a pigeon on a W for the Winnipigeon idea, but then for the McLuhan Institute, I like to think that I take a little bit of a different approach to things and I flip the bird, if you will. And you have to be an English speaker to get the, the joke in there. Exactly. Flipping the bird is, is a euphemism for giving the middle finger or saying, fuck you. And I don't, I don't mean that I really say fuck you to conventional studies or whatever, but it's just a, I think it really shows my approach of coming at it from not an academic, but from a poetic or even punk rock kind of side of things. Um, But meaning, you know, this is kind of media literacy territory or, you know, content studies kind of thing, meaning. Marshall brings us up in understanding media where he uses T.S. Eliot. And uh, T.S. Eliot said that um, meaning in a poem was the juicy piece of meat used by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. And Marshall paraphrased this in Understanding Media to say that content is the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. And what he means by that is, while we're all busy paying attention to the content, even discoursing eloquently on the content and what it all means, the medium is doing its work, rearranging our sensibility, ourselves, our society. And it doesn't matter if we're reading The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald or listening to people swearing at us in punk rock songs. Um, The medium is doing its work uh, aside from meaning. So it's not that content is irrelevant or has no effect. Of course, content has effect. The medium is the message. 
is content. There's, there's a lot to it and we can talk about it for days, but um, it's not all there is to it. And in fact, it's kind of the least part of things when it comes to the effect on, on humans in societies. Uh, when it comes to the effect, the content has a lot less shaping power than the media. So you were talking a bit about your, you know, your punk band, the politics. Uh, so I thought, why don't we talk a little about politics? Because something that I've been thinking a lot about when I was preparing for this interview was the possible political implications of, of this, this kind of approach. Um, and so for other related projects uh, to this, I've been doing a lot of thinking about activism and those sorts of things. And so I was thinking about something like Occupy Wall Street, for example, right? So you have Occupy Wall Street, these people, they take over this, these outdoor spaces, they sort of reclaim the commons in some sense. And all the media of the time, oh, sorry, that's a loaded term in this conversation. Uh, all, all of the reporters could talk about was this constant demand, the demand for demands, right? What is your list of demands? What is your list of demands? And part of me, you know, looking at it through this, this media ecology kind of lens wants to say, well, if the medium is the message and the occupation was the demand, right? That it was, that it wasn't that they were taking the land in order to get you to listen to a, a, a list of demands, but rather that is the action itself, right? The, the, the seizing of territory is the message. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about um, the way that this might translate into political movement. So I'm thinking of, you know, what would it look like to say the riot is the message? What would it look like to say, you know, occupation or the blockade is the message or, or things along those lines, road closures as the message? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a little bit of controversy about uh, where and when the term media ecology came about. There's There's some debate on it. All I know is what I was told. And uh, I was told by my dad that he came up with the term and that Neil Postman ran with it. And Neil Postman gives a lot of credit to McLuhan too. But there are some major differences between the Postman approach, which is, um, you know, there's very much a school of media ecology or media studies headed by Postman philosophies uh, and the McLuhan approach. One of the key differences to reduce it to very simple terms is that um, you know, with things like amusing ourselves to death, Postman starts from a moral point of view, whether these things are good or bad. And Marshall starts with not an amoral point of view, but without a point of view, in that we can't, we can't say whether something good or bad until we understand what it is. And in fact, if you go ahead and, and decide whether something is good, you know, net good or net bad, um, or even neutral, then you're going to, you know, it's going to color your, your analysis from the go. You're not going to have any sort of objectivity at all. Objectivity is a hard enough thing anyway. Um, you know, we need to re remove any barriers from it if we're going to understand the action of it. Now, the way I've kind of been raised in it, media ecology implies action in activist stance. And in fact, I was honored by, there's something called the Media Ecology Association. And they gave me this award here in 2019, the 2019 Jacques Ellul Award for Outstanding Media Ecology Activism for my work with the, with the McLuhan Institute. And I was, I was really touched by that because um, one of the, the main points of any of this McLuhan work is you know, wake people up to the effect of technologies as environments, as shaping powers. It's, it's activist. And the weird thing is that there's this funny period when in 1962, Rachel Carson wrote The Silent Spring. And in 1962, Marshall McLuhan wrote The Gutenberg Galaxy. And The Silent Spring really blew the lid off pollution, environmental, industrial pollution. And people got really pissed off and started stuff like Greenpeace. But where is the screen piece? Where is the Greta Thunberg of media ecology? There isn't one. And this is concerning. The difficulty is it's, it's really easy to see the effects of industrial and environmental uh, pollution. It's very hard to see 
you have to be really looking out for it to see society-wide effects of technologies. People just don't want to admit the cause and effect relationship. Um, and if we agree that these things have these consequences, then we have to admit some responsibility for them. And who wants to take responsibility? Nobody. Certainly companies don't. I, I did a speech a couple of years ago called From Snake Oil to Silicon, where I looked into the turn of the century state of affairs in the US um, before the creation of the FDA. Before the FDA, before the Food and Drug Administration or the Food and Drug Safeties Act, um, there was very little regulation for food and pharmaceutical companies. People started getting sick and dying and demanded that the government step in, and they created this act and an FDA to enforce it that said that drugs, pharmaceuticals, had to be um, safe and effective. Those are, those are the two big categories, safety and efficacy for human consumption. But it's very difficult to think of what safe and effective means. In tech, you know, how does safe and effective apply to an iPhone? So you get talking about the battery, right? Make sure the battery doesn't blow up on your head or the radiation doesn't cause some sickness. But this is content stuff too, right? That doesn't take into account how leaving this in home instead of having it on me makes a drastic difference in my productivity or, you know, the various addictions people have with, you know, porn sites and online betting and all the rest of it, right? Which wouldn't be possible without this device. But <laughs> who's going to take responsibility for that? Apple's not. Uh, and what government is going to propose legislation on it or create a tech FDA? not the United States government or any other government, you know. The thing is, you can bet that Bayer and any other company fought tooth and nail against the Food and Drug Safety Act. You can you can just imagine, well, you're if you if you delay us getting drugs to market, innocent people are going to suffer and people are going to die because it takes us 5 years to get a product to market. In the same way, tech companies are going to say, well, you know, we have a right to get our products to market uh, as quickly as possible. No drug company wanted the FDA to happen. Now look at today, and none of them are hurting. Has it hurt their bottom line, having to, you know, ensure public health and wellness? Hell no. They're making more money than they ever did. So these kind of arguments are baseless. You make a loving play field, and it's fair. But it's very difficult because in order to do that, we have to discover what safe and effective means. And we have to come up with systemized ways for understanding the effects of technologies to account for the kind of effects that, that we see in society. And it's, it's a difficult thing to pin down. So to me, this is, this is the activism that I engage in. And what to me is the point of media ecology is to advocate for these kind of things. And I may not be able to say this and this and this is what we have to do, but um, my goal is to at least open these conversations and bring them out beyond the simple stuff, which is you know knowing uh, the bias of CNN versus Fox, which is important, but that's not uh, that's nothing compared to the other things that are happening. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying goes back in a certain sense to uh, what you were saying about sort of perceiving change over time, which we're not really that good at, right? So whether it's the uh, climate change or whether it's sort of uh, the effects of technology on uh, society uh, as such, we're not good at perceiving that. And for a number of reasons, uh, I, Matt and I were talking recently about um, technology. We're reading Bernard Stiegler's Technics and Time. We're thinking about the different kinds of articulations, environments that are created by different technological milieus, kind of going all the way back to the Stone Age, right? And then you have the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the Information Age, and all these things make all different kinds of things possible. But as you're suggesting, it's never questioned. And I think maybe there's a theological dimension here to foreground and, and talk about in terms of the uh, religion of progress. 
uh, people are indoctrinated would almost be a too strong of a word. It's just like the air that we breathe, so to speak. Well, you know, it's interesting. Marshall first said the medium is the message in 1958 and people had no idea what he was talking about. You know, what do you mean? The message is the message and all this stuff. People were obsessed with the Shannon Weaver model of communication, which is all about moving things from here to there with as little noise as possible. But that doesn't take into account these psychic and social and personal consequences at all. Um, that's that's content studies. And again, I'm not I'm not using that word as a pejorative. You know, it's it's important stuff, but it's just it's not the whole story. The interesting thing is um, Marshall shifted a great deal from his early understanding to his later understanding. And in the early days, uh, it's funny because I happen to have this thing, this thing right here. Um, there's this, this essay from 1955 called The Historical Approach to the Media. At the bottom here, it says, improvements in the means of communication are usually based on a shift from one sense to another. And this involves a rapid refocusing of all previous experience. It is therefore a simple maximum of communication study that any change in the means of communication will produce a chain of revolutionary consequences at every level of culture and politics. And because of the complexity of the components in this process, prediction and control are not possible. That's a big statement in 1955 that Marshall is saying, this stuff is so big. There's no way we can predict, much less control our technologies. They are too complex and they're uncontrollable. But Marshall changed his tune. And as early as, you know, 10 years later in understanding media, he basically says prediction and control are possible. And understanding media implies that media can be understood. Because here's Marshall giving this guide to understanding media prediction and control are possible. And he used, you know, he's great with analogies. And of course, he's an English teacher. So he reaches to literature for a lot of them and to James Joyce more often than not, but also to Edgar Allan Poe. And Poe has this great story called A Descent into the Maelstrom. That's my favorite Poe story. Right? It's punchy. Um, It's intense. Yeah. Uh, Short and sweet and to the point. Um, I've actually been... uh, I've got so many things to read, but I'm dipping into collected works of Edgar Allan Poe um, because I'm really interested. So when people bring up Poe and McLuhan, they inevitably refer to the descent into the maelstrom for obvious reasons, which I'll get into in a second. But the flip side of it is that Poe created the modern detective novel with his character Dupin. And uh, I just recently read The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is um, where Dupin comes in for the first time. And Marshall likened his method, modeled it even after the modern detective story, because as he said, we begin with effects and we work back to causes. And this is how the detective operates. You know, the story starts, or even in real life, the detective gets called in as a murder detective when somebody's dead. That's the effect. Then they have to piece things together and figure out how that happened. So they begin with the effect and they work backward to causes to figure out how that effect was achieved, how the murder happened, you know, means, motive, opportunity, all these motives, which again is sort of the context, content studies. But we begin with effects and work back to causes. But um, Marshall brought out the descent to the maelstrom time and again as a reason for hope. And this is because in the story, there's a sailor and his brother and they're fishermen and they're out in the sea and where they live, there's this giant maelstrom in the ocean. Everybody knows about it. It's, it's no surprise. You stay away from it. You're fine. But you know, this one day they they're fishing and they're onto a good school of fish or whatever, and they get too close and they get sucked in. Well, the sailor, the narrator, his brother loses his stuff and, you know, despair jumps overboard and, you know, dies. But the thing about this maelstrom is it's huge. And they're in this boat and they're going around and around and around and around. And this, the narrator, after losing his voice screaming for however long, calms down a little bit. And he says, you know, maybe it's just the way I'm made up, but 
I got to studying my surroundings and looking at the action of this vortex I was in. And he notices that certain objects kind of go against the downward motion of the maelstrom and instead are, are drifting up and out. And he, he pays more attention. And, and by studying the action of, of this thing, he figures out what objects and when are likely to go against this current and go out. And he straps himself to a trunk or whatever, and he times it just right, and he jumps into the vortex, and he's carried up and out and washes ashore and lives. And, you know, he tells, he's telling this story um, to other people, and they think he's crazy. But Marshall used this as analogy to us today in our technological circumstance. And here we are in these, you know, technological vortices. They look incomprehensible and vast and all-powerful, but by studying the action of them, we have a good chance of neutralizing their effects, or at least going some way toward neutralizing the effects. The point is that we're not as helpless as maybe is convenient to think. Because the, the thing is, if, if we recognize that we can do something about it, it's incumbent upon us to do something about it. And just like the drug company, it's a pain in the butt, you know, and it's costly. It means that we have to slow things down. And the difficulty here is that technology moves at the speed of light and bureaucracy moves at the speed of paper. So who's going to win? Technology every time. Because look, by the time we get a bill through Congress or whatever, it's not even going to be the iPhone anymore. It'll be something else. So how do we, how do we work with that? I think part of the answer is actually in the speed of paper. And it's, it's kind of ironic, but I think the thing keeping literacy alive these years is our lawyers, right? Because lawyers move at the speed of paper and the law moves at the speed of paper and is keeping literacy and paper somewhat alive, I think, which is kind of funny. This is why um, I believe there's hope because, uh, well, there's, there's a couple things, a couple reasons. For one thing, when it comes to McLuhan work, I don't think I'm an exceptional brain, right? Like I said, I didn't go to university. I'm an upholsterer and a poet and a punk rocker, right? Like I'm kind of an average person. And I think if I can understand this stuff, then anybody can. So there's hope there. If I can do it, somebody else can. But as far as, you know, McLuhan studies in the first place, you know, it's like breaking the 10 second mile or, you know, even dunking a basketball after the first person does it somehow it's easier and more people can do it. And that's a weird thing, but I think we, we get in our own way a lot of the time. And once we see that it can be done, it becomes all of a sudden easier for everybody else to do it. So this is why I have hope is kind of because Marshall had hope. And if he saw hope, then I think we have reason to believe. I know that's faulty logic or whatever, but it works for me. I was, I was convinced. I was about to give you an amen. Uh, Matt, did you have anything else? I love it that your definition of a normal person is a poet and an upholsterer and a punk rocker. (laughs) I know, right? It it sounds like he's like a certain kind of Renaissance man in his own way. (laughs) I'll take it. Thank you. Buy my book. We've been going for a while. I just, uh, do you want to wrap up by telling us maybe a little bit more about the McLuhan Institute? What kind of projects are you working on? Uh, You already mentioned the class. Uh, that you've been yeah. doing. What do you have going on? Sure. Well, um, so the McLuhan Institute, I mean, I am the McLuhan Institute, basically. It's me, really. <laughs> um, and I try to meet people to an extent where they are. That is, uh, you know, I live in a rural community, so I don't expect people to really drop in. But if you happen to be in the Prince Edward County area, holler. I'm actually kind of conveniently located uh, partway between Toronto which is where Marshall had the Center for Culture and Technology and where his books now are at the John Fisher Rare Book Library, Thomas Fisher, John Fisher, um, in Ottawa, Ontario, which is um, where the Canadian National Archives are um, that have the bulk of his papers. And I'm kind of halfway in between, and I have Eric McLuhan's library and archives and a lot of Marshall's stuff that didn't end up in either Toronto or Ottawa or someplace in between. It's a really cool place to be, honestly. You know, I try to tell the story of the McLuhan Institute, what I dig up, what I'm researching, what I'm finding, 
through pictures on Instagram, through aphorisms and tidy, juicy pieces of content on Twitter uh, and on Facebook as well. I have a Patreon page, which sometimes pays the heating bill out here. And if you want to join that, I would thank you very much. Um, And YouTube. One thing I did this year was I uncovered uh, half a dozen Monday night seminar tapes, uh, reel-to-reel tapes, and had them digitized. And I've put them up on, on the McLuhan Institute YouTube. So there's six or eight hours of recently unearthed 50-year-old McLuhan, which is really, really worth uh, checking out. Yeah, that sounds dope. Yeah, they're very cool. I'm always finding new stuff. And my job here is to give you kind of shortcuts, you know, help you wade through the stuff and get to the juicy bits. That's what I do with the Understanding Media course. And I think next up, I'm I'm working on developing um, a later McLuhan book, City's Classroom, uh, Understanding Language and Media, which is all about figuring ground and training perception. So uh, if the difficult thing in these invisible environments is, you know, probing and understanding the environment, we need to train our perception. That's the thesis of the book. Um, and it's exercises geared at high school students of the late 1970s. So it needs a little bit of updating, but that's kind of next up for me. Um, and then personally, maybe write some more poems, maybe plug in and turn things up a little bit more. And uh, yeah, find me online. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hit me up on the gram. Um, right. This. Do you have an Instagram? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, I'm the McLuhan Institute on Twitter, Instagram, whatever, okay, okay. but I, I also have personal stuff where I do personal stuff. Post- upholstery <laughs> uh, videos and, and so on. Well, I have an Instagram account called Chairs and Stairs, yeah. spelled S-T-A-R-E-S, because I'm really, like, oh, yeah. I'm a, as you may have gathered, I'm a, I'm a street art enthusiast. And I'm really interested in seeing things that aren't supposed to be seen. In particular, there's a word, pareidolia, I think is the name, for when you see faces in ordinary objects. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I have a Twitter account, or sorry, Instagram account, basically devoted to all these faces I see in walls and objects. Oh, yeah, that's fun. Well, when you said uh, things that I don't, things that you're not supposed to see, I was like, oh, you know what would be a cool name for that? Peeping Tom. (laughs) (laughs) and then you can change your name to tom it'll be fun (laughs) yeah i'm married and have kids so you know better avoid getting same same um this was a lot of fun really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about your work with the McLuhan institute and the, the legacy of eric and marshall you know one of the things that i i i from what i understand there's been a little bit of a resurgence in, in McLuhan studies as of late, maybe because of some of the reasons you already mentioned and um, McLuhan's everyone knows the name, but I feel like very few people actually get around to reading him. So I guess the last thing I would want to say is, is just to encourage people to go read a little bit of McLuhan because it's actually worth the trip it has been my experience. And it's like each little chapter is a little manifesto. It's like a grenade. The thing, the thing I would say is you know, don't take my word for it. Uh, I always, I always point people to primary sources with anything, you know, people ask me about secondary sources. So who's the best person to read about McLuhan? I'm like, you are the best person to read about McLuhan, pick up a book. It's not easy. It wasn't easy in in 1962 to read the Gutenberg galaxy or 64 to read understanding media, but people had this thing called an attention span back then which um you know we don't have very much of these days but the thing about the attention span is it's a muscle uh and it atrophies and it's pretty atrophied today but you can train it and the only way to train it is to is to use it and the best way to use it is by reading a book and i mean a book a, a physical book because and i'm not being precious about you know material objects over electric you know, e-readers or whatever for the sake of it, but simply the mechanic of the thing, the thing about the word on the screen is that we tend to skip and skim uh, and scroll. 
And on the page, it, usually with a serif font, you know, the little curly things on the end of letters, they slow you down. And that's how you train your attention. The same thing, this is the reason why I write a lot of things by hand too. I always write my poetry by hand because it forces you to slow down. I can type twice as fast, but the quality is much different. And I don't mean, you know, the relative value. I mean, the, the nature is different. And the number one thing I would say, aside from reading on paper and like print something out if you have to. Um, the other thing is when approaching McLuhan, approach it like a poem. Take your time with it. it read a page a day. Don't try and read a whole chapter, much less a whole book in one sitting, because you're not going to get much out of it. Come back to it a day later, a week later. Treat it like a poem, and you'll get a lot more out of it, because the thing is, you're filling in the gaps. You're making the meaning, and that's the important part of the equation there. Um, and that's, that's how you're going to get anywhere with it. So good luck and good night. <laughs> perfect. Good luck. <laughs> that was that was perfect. Uh, thanks again, man. This was fun. Thank thank you so much. Thanks, yeah, take care. All right, later. Have a good one. Thanks again to Andrew and the McLuhan Institute. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, FYI. Matt, Justin, and I hung out for a little while after the interview and kept the conversation going, so that may become a mini-episode. I'm not sure. I gotta listen back and make sure it's not a hot fucking mess. Anyway, see you next time. Peace.